1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor Wisdom WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of so investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We have a really interesting deep dive today on China. We're going uh, the head of Asia Pacific from ex-ante Data, talking about digital currencies, what's happening there, a little bit on Bitcoin and other things. Um, but Professor Siegel, maybe to kickstart our program here, we've got a new president. We've got some new policy. How are you thinking about where it's going on in the markets?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, everyone thinks the Democrats are going to so easily get everything they want, and uh, even with a fifty-fifty uh, Senate and a tiebreaker, I think uh, you realize there's going to be a lot of negotiations. I don't think Biden's getting one point nine trillion. I mean, they're going to they're going to get a lot as a second, but it's go- it's going to be paired it's going to be pared down um, uh, somewhat, but. Uh, the basic story, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I commented on a Financial Times uh, piece uh, this week, is that the unprecedented monetary stimulus uh, is, is going to provide a boom for 2021, and it's going to provide strong GDP growth, strong corporate profit growth, and, and much stronger than expected uh, inflation uh, uh, going forward. Um, jobless claims, uh, you know, show that, you know, where, where, you know, that the virus is, is having an impact. Uh, although home sales are good, the PMIs in production are good, but anything, you know, that involves people moving around in terms of, uh, leisure, entertainment, um, travel, uh, is still going to be very, uh, restricted. Uh, on, the, on the vaccine front, and I, I think that's, uh, you know what everyone should be focused on as i've been saying for months um uh it it it's actually interesting um uh biden put a goal of uh, a million shots a day well we're already at a million shots a day we were actually at a million shots a day before he became president so uh he he was asked at the news uh, several news conferences well why why don't we do more um and he said oh well you know two weeks ago you said i couldn't even do a million well I think it's easy. I think it's going to be. uh, I think we're going to do a million. We're over a million right now. I mean, the rollout is beginning to get better uh, after you know a a terrible, unfocused start. Um, As I said, we're doing over a million, um, getting it into the arms mostly of people who need it now. And uh, you know, I think people once they get their second shot are going to be much more amenable to, to to get back to the life that they uh, had led before the pandemic.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, Yeah, Congrats on a great op-ed and and piece there in the FT. Any comments on what may drive inflation? Some of the discussion I've been hearing is like, where is this inflation going to manifest the most? Do you see as we reopen? Is there any place that that you see bigger risk for that?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I I mean, I think that, you know, that the Dems push for fifteen dollars uh, minimum wage um, uh you know they're going to increase labor costs uh uh but i think it's mostly going to be strong demand i mean i i you know basically people are going to be buying things i mean and 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 uh, that they had suppressed and and that's going to push uh prices uh forward now there will be more supply and and more workers but uh there's a there's a there's hundreds of billions of dollars uh that are now in savings accounts, that are in checking accounts, that are in transactions accounts, uh that have built up over the year. And I think people uh just like after World War Two, um, with all the build up because they we had rationing then because of the war effort, and then once that rationing ended, wow, everyone began spending, pressing on prices, causing post war inflation. Uh you know, more 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 Demand means inflation. We're going to increase supply, but we're going to have wages go up, demand go up, prices go up. It's going to be a great economy. Don't just think of inflation as a terrible negative. Uh, inflation uh, in its early stages is actually a, a good prompter to, to a strong uh, uh, economic uh, growth. And as I said, people spending, there's only so much restaurant, so much food, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so much that you can go back to the parks that you postponed for a year. And I think that that's going to definitely press on, on uh, prices next year, including, by the way, uh, a drop in the dollar, which I think is going to uh, raise the cost of imported goods. And we already see that sensitive commodities are beginning uh, to uh, match, uh, if not exceed, their pre-COVID levels.
2: Yeah,
0: it's interesting. When you think about what should you do on these inflation views, and we talked a lot about uh, the bond market here, um, some of the portfolios you and I overlook. Uh, you've you sort of reduced some bond exposure and added to commodities. And I think that's sort of one of the interesting questions is like how, what, what to do for inflation hedging and and, and sort of commodities yeah. is one of those places to maybe and fund I did, did, bonds.
1: I did recommend gold. It's been disappointing because I think it's been drained by Bitcoin. I think it will... Eventually catch up, but any of the commodities, including the, the industrial commodities, or the emerging markets uh, countries that that represent those are are going to be uh, are are going to be favorable uh, stock market uh, uh, investments in twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Bitcoin, a uh, little bit of the air on on yeah. the hotness of that came out the last week twenty five percent in a week. It's sort of interesting the volatility we're getting is actually
1: there, actually relatively small for. Bitcoin <laughs> uh, in compared to history, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of speculation there, and we've talked about that, and we will be talking about that more later. I think in in, in some of our other uh, programs going forward.
0: Yeah, and and maybe final comments on on bonds when you think about the yields, we 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 cracked one percent. As you think yeah. about where we can go higher this year, Any... i
1: I think two percent by the end of the year. I'm wow. way above. I know consensus one four. Probably the 1.5, but I think with the stronger economy and the inflation, uh, they're going to be more and more bondholders are saying, "I'm backing away from this investment."
0: Yeah, I think Byron Wien put out one of his top 10 surprises as uh, the, the 2% on the tenure. So you're huh. saying his surprise is coming to market the the conversation we're going to be focusing to here for the remainder of the program we've got Grant Wilson who oversees Ante's Asia Pacific region and we're going to be focusing a little bit on bitcoin but uh, the digital assets and the currency markets That's going to be a really interesting conversation we're looking forward to talking here with Mr. Wilson of Ante data. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having
2: me on. Uh Jeremy, appreciate that. exante data is uh, based in New York. Has been I'd say um at the cutting edge of uh, global macro advisory and and sort of data analytics for about five years, founded by Jens Norvig, uh, who's quite well known and quite prominent um, in the macro community and on Twitter and various other things. Um, I joined about 18 months ago. My background was actually from the buy side. I'd worked for the government of Singapore's Investment Corporation, which is a big sovereign wealth fund uh, in Asia for the better part of a decade, and then done a a decade on my own in New York, actually, running my own hedge fund, but yes, back in Sydney in Australia, um, thankfully, given what happened in the last 12 months, um, not the sort of place you necessarily want to be um, with with a young family in New York City. So grateful to be back in Sydney. Joined Exante about 18 months ago. <clears throat> and the pandemic itself, I should say, Jeremy, was quite a game-changing event uh, for Exante because it, it showed the importance, I think, of having a full stack of data uh, early on. Um, We weren't just doing capital flow analysis, we were doing uh, virus analysis from from January onwards. And we saw a a tremendous knowledge gap um, in financial markets in terms of the importance of the event very early on. on. And so we spent most of last year, certainly the front part of last year, sort of connecting the dots between epidemiology, between alt data, uh, mobility, um, financial markets and more traditional things that we're well known for. And I think that that really um, showed off Exante's wares in terms of having a great set of uh, data scientists in the team, but also people um, with experience at the pointy end of uh, global macro who are able to sort of connect the dots um, and push very, very aggressive uh, narratives into the marketplace and into the global media space as well. So last year was, I think, uh, sort of quite a crowning achievement for for Exante, and has really firmly established um, you know, Exante at the at the real premium end of uh, global macro advisory.
0: So who would you say is benefiting the most from some of your work? Is it currency people? Is it asset allocation people? equity people, all the above, like who's who's predominantly becoming users?
2: Yeah, we saw early on, I think, at Exante's um, evolution that hedge funds were the typical sort of market participant that would come to us for um, detailed insights. And frankly, they're just um, generally in a better position in terms of budget to pay for our services. Um, But I would say in the early part of the pandemic, that was – clearly the most action-orientated client segment that we had, there was just tremendous demand to understand what was going on. And again, we'd flagged this from, I think, Jan 20, and we'd started publishing a daily from Jan 27 of last year. So we were, like, way early. And we did come under some scrutiny as well because, like, right through February, if you recall, markets were rallying and the virus was cooped up in China and people thought it was um, irrelevant and the sell side was pushing back against it. We held our line through that period, and then through March, it was an explosive period uh, for us, probably the busiest we've been ever. Um, and, you know, Jens and I probably have 50 years of market experience between us. Yeah. And so <clears throat> what we saw then was a crossover, not just the hedge fund community that had already put on some pretty big bets, bearish bets, um, but we saw uh, corporates reaching out, um, trying to understand, and these are like big corporates, some of the biggest corporations in the world, management consultant firms, uh, we changed our onboarding process because we were just totally overwhelmed by the amount of interest and the fact that it was coming from uh, different segments. Real money was really slow um, and in some cases, I think, just held through it. Um, now, that's not everyone because, you know, the risk parity segment got badly caught out and they have mandatory, you know, drawdown uh, space. <clears throat> Even ETFs, uh, and that's probably your world, Jeremy, like, you know, it was, it was just um, a really tremendously um, differentiated um, point in time for global markets. And so, family offices, private banks—I mean, you name it—everyone was getting stress tested in in some way. But um, we were also in collaboration with government at that time, and with the Imperial College of London's um, epidemiological team. Frankly, we we published a—they published a important paper on on China coming out of lockdown, which was based on our old data set. So it was a it was a rarefied uh, moment in yeah. time. Um, And we were on the front foot throughout that. And we definitely saw, as you typically see when it comes to shocks, uh, the hedge fund community reacting first, um, filling their knowledge gap quickly, rapidly, and then the real money segments catching up um, and the corporates also engaging um, very aggressively and and retooling their sort of their plans, um, their survival plans, and also, you know, looking for opportunities as, um, as the world changed so dramatically.
0: Yeah, we're, going to, we're going to drill into China in some detail with one of your latest posts. But before we get there, like, what do you have a sort of – from all the work that you guys have been producing in these the, the, these subscriptions, any sort of top-down level view of where we are in that, that virus um, as you think about the global recovery? Any or high-level views here you want to share?
2: Yeah, the guys are very much focused on the vaccine rollout now. Um, and again, if you just have a quick look at our Twitter feed, which has got some um, publicly available resources there, you'll get a sense of, of what we're thinking. Um, but we're tracking that at the country level, at the state level in the US, um, in terms of efficacy as well. And so that's probably the dominant theme um, if, you, if you're looking to still focus on COVID as a market driver. Obviously, that was one of the challenges of last year was that um, you know, from probably April to uh, May onwards. We had these second waves and third waves, but the market became much less responsive uh, to the virus itself. Right, it was dominated by monetary policy and fiscal policy, and and some structural changes that were happening beneath the surface in global financial markets as well. And so we are at the same time, you know, emphasising that um, you know the the vaccine rollout, whilst it's important, it's it, practically a form of stimulus uh, to the global economy. There are a lot of other things going on uh, this year and having a sort of a mindset where we can just trade vaccine rollout isn't, isn't necessarily the right approach.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, I saw Jens publishing a little bit on the sort of monetary policy combined with fiscal that you just talked about. And is that going to be the catalyst for inflation? Like we had all this QE before yeah. and now, you know, is, is the, the combined effort is this the year of reflation
2: inflation any of yeah. you there yeah the inflation thematic is is definitely um getting some airplay and um particularly at the start of the year because i think we've had a you know a move in energy prices as well and break evens uh, have um have moved and it's true like you know depending on what you look at whether it's monetary base or m2 there's some pretty unique things uh, which are going on globally and particularly in the us and so you are finding you know the the old inflation uh cap you know, rolling its arguments out. And there'll be base effects as well. So you know it's going to be interesting to see how central banks recraft their narrative um, to hold the line in terms of their stimulus programs, or if they don't. Um, listen, I, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a risk manager at heart. You know, I ran my own hedge fund for a long period of time. And so I would actually caution you know trying to gravitate towards one theme or another, whether it's inflation or vaccine rollout in the first and second week of January. Um, I think it's really important to keep an open mind at the start of the calendar year in terms of what's going to happen next. And that was sort of really helped us last year. If you think no one was talking about a pandemic in mid-Jan last year and the world just flipped on its axis. And so I think just keeping an open mind early in the year is important. I'm actually quite fascinated by what's happening with uh, Trump uh, being deplatformed and the potential for quite a radical polarization of the right uh, in America, and Trump remaining somehow centre stage for longer than he should have been, and so I, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on right now that I think you need to be across um, and keeping an open mind early in the calendar year is a good idea if you're trading risk. Yeah, we're we're talking with Grant Wilson,
0: of head of Asia Pacific for Ex-Anti uh, Data, and, and Grant, let's sort of go towards on um, on talking Trump. You know, I think one of the the main narratives when first Trump first came in is, is trade wars with China. Um, We've got a lot of issues with China. Um, Recently, we've got these executive orders that are banning investment in a lot of the the sort of military activities. We've got a new administration coming Um, and and you've been writing about China. But as as before we get to some of the specifics, any high level views on the U.S.-China relationship and, and what you see about investor interest in China, how it differs from the U.S. to some of your clients around the world?
2: Yeah, massive topic, obviously, and particularly pertinent sitting in Australia, because we've sort of been caught up in the middle of this um, situation as between the US and China. Australia is one of many countries that tries to sort of strategically balance between the two. But, you know, China is our largest consumer and the US is our um, security blanket. So it's a particularly acute situation here. And you may not know, Jeremy, but we led the charge on a couple of things, a government here, Huawei was you know, technically an Australian yeah. initiative. Um, we banned 5G first and that went global. And China's um, you know, t- taken a very dim view of that because that was a key piece of not just national but uh, global infrastructure for them. And we also led the charge on the Wuhan inquiry for the virus, right? So the Morrison government here, who's been pretty closely aligned, not so much with Trump but with Mike Pompeo, um, has been you know, pretty much on the front foot. And you've seen the result, you know, China's uh, tried to and has indeed uh, levied various forms of, of tariffs and other forms of uh, trade protectionism against uh, different segments of the Australian export market. So in terms of the U.S., <clears throat> listen, I think the, the relationship between the U.S. and China has durably changed as a consequence of the Trump administration. And I think there'll be aspects where there's some form of rapprochement sought uh, through the Biden Uh, administration, but it's hard for him to move first because he can't be seen as, you know, too soft on China. But I think in very simplistic terms, because it's such a massive topic, Jeremy, maybe just, um, you know, uh, demarcate between trade tensions, where I do think there is some potential uh, for rollback. Um, If China can just provide an opportunity for the US to come to the table on that, um, you've seen the Europeans already do a deal, you know, with the, with, with China uh, recently as well, I do think there can be some normalisation of trade and that you'll see different vectors open up of complex interdependence on the currency, capital flows, they will try to normalise things. But the, the flip side of that is that anything in the technology sphere, in terms of technology transfer, IPs, critical infrastructure, that now falls globally in terms of Um, its importance into a different domain, into the domain of security, national security. And I don't think that's going to change under Biden. There's just too much concern um, in terms of the way China's been able to project influence through the region and through the world, um, you know, through different forms of technology transfer. So I think you're going to end up with a real digital divide. You know, China's pushing ahead in many ways on that, including through Huawei rolling out an operating system, which people don't really know about and which could ultimately host its own apps and displace China's reliance upon uh, Google and Apple in full. So, and it, it's, it's clearly an outward part of their strategy uh, in terms of reducing any form of dependence themselves. So I do think you're going to ultimately end up with, um, you know, a digital divide, China trying to push that out uh, through the Belt and Road, through their um, digital currency, through various other means. Um, but still an attempt, I think, to try to roll back some of the trade tension this year. No one really wins from that, you know, and I think both sides will recognize that.
0: yeah, I've been talking a lot about like who can give u s tech, you know the u s tech companies have been on you know they 've dominated the u s market you know and in some ways china 's big tech have are even more dominant in their market you know and they 've been you say who could have outperformed the nasdaq? Well, China tech did quite well yeah. last year uh, and, and did better than the nasdaq um and you sort of and now you sort of you 're getting more of these headlines. They haven't taken the step of an Alibaba and Tencent and make those, you know, on these prohibited lists. But I don't know if you hear any of – do you hear any of that? You know, there's some headlines last week talking about that. Um, you know, any, any worries that you hear around the world from the big tech in, in China?
2: Yeah, I mean it, it came and went last year a few times. I think um, firstly when, you know, China quite successfully, I have to say, um, rolled through Hong Kong with its national security yeah. law. Um, you saw, you know, some outrage at that time and an attempt to open up <clears throat> different forms of leverage on Chinese banks as well as uh, tech company. Um, but it's very, very hard for the US to, you know, to sort of weaponize uh, some of those things coherently. Um, and then, we, you know, we saw things like the TikTok situation uh, later in the year and so on and so forth. I think this will flame out um, somewhat, you know, once Trump's out of office, Biden's going to have his hands full. Yeah, There's a lot going on. And so I think just inflaming um, this stuff, particularly, like Tencent and Alibaba are domestically orientated companies principally, um, and they've also got large Western shareholders. so and you know frankly, um, Alibaba in particular is not <laughs> in the best of uh, books with Beijing right now because they're coming unstuck in terms of the payment system and whether the Chinese government's going to compete. Um, with Alibaba in terms of this new digital currency project. So, I listen, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, it's complicated, but I just don't think it will be the first thing um, that, uh, you know, comes to mind for the Biden administration. There might, frankly, be some tail risk in the next nine days. Like, I think that, that's probably right. a more realistic sort of situation um, that Mnuchin is, uh, is told to sort of um, keep swinging uh, as much as he can on the way out the door.
0: Well, that brings up, uh, as you mentioned, Alibaba competing on the digital currency. That was sort of the motivation for reaching out. You just published a a new blog on a a thing called Money Inside Out is where you guys are publishing some some content. And, you know, you just wrote about this, the central bank digital currency. Um, And, you know, you had a – a a statement that 2020 is like an inflection for fiat versus fractional reserves. Maybe talk about what you think happened in 2020. That's the inflection. What is the old paradigm and new paradigm? What's gonna be so important about those differences?
2: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we started this blog uh, in December as sort of a team project because we are still sort of holed up behind our paywall, you know, with our corporate clients and our hedge fund clients and all the rest of that. And we recognise, though, that, you know, we've got more to say and sometimes creative and provocative things to say. I write a column for the Australian Financial Review uh, most weeks, so I, I'm able to sort of um, communicate to a mass audience there. But I think Jens felt it was time for Exante, for at least some of the senior uh, team, to be able to, you know, write stuff which is sort of at the cutting edge, sometimes a little bit speculative, um, and push it out, publicly so that the blog you just mentioned money inside it out is available for anyone to see and that note the first one that i contributed on china yeah that one sort of blew up i have to say (laughs) we can obviously see how many subscribers we've got now how many many people read it and it was like i don't know like five or six times more so it's interesting um, in the social
0: media world right i found it on twitter you know i'm on twitter i saw probably Yen's or you and you know i was like wow this is a pretty interesting piece
2: Yeah, I'm not on Twitter at all. I was (laughs) trying to be a private person for most of my life. But, yeah, this one, I'm still getting emails from people that, you know, I knew five, ten years ago. So, oh, wow, this is interesting. Didn't know about this and how are you sort of thing. So it's going to – I'll have to follow it up in February because it was – it hit a real gap, I think. And, listen, the gap is just that everyone's sort of just mindlessly focusing on crypto at the moment and making too much money off it, right? And so they're able just to – put all their sort of emotional energy into that space. And that's a complicated space too. But I think the point I was trying to make in the article at the the outset was, let's not just talk about crypto. Let's talk about digital currencies. Like that's the proper phraseology. Because once you've got that phrase, you're covering crypto. And crypto defined in every single way, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's programmable money, whether it's DeFi, whether it's centralized, pretend crypto like Ripple, you know, you've got that whole space covered, right? But then you've also got central bank digital currencies, and they're going to open up a lot of new vistas. Um, they're all also going to look quite different depending on which project um, you're talking about. But then you've also got like Facebook's coin, right? Um, DM, previously called Libra. Um, it's currently being held up by Swiss authorities. And I think behind the scenes, global authorities are asking the Swiss authorities to keep holding it up as long as possible. But at some point, that's going to come out. And at some point, listen, Mark Carney might um, push on with his uh, broader idea of creating a hegemonically important um, global currency you know he 's very well respected. he floated that eighteen months ago two years ago didn 't get a lot of traction but if if china 's project um, you know is as far reaching as I think it will be, then there may need to be a western response and it may need to be coordinated across um, global central banks at the, the bis level so listen it 's a huge huge topic. Um, we sort of poked the poked the bear a little bit with that article, and and it only just confirmed what at least I thought, which was that um, people need to school up about this and start thinking about it. I'm not suggesting that it's got directional implications for dollar China or things like that, Um, but I think people need to put this on their radar. So that's why I sort of wrote the article in provocative terms in the sense that what I was effectively arguing was that, you know, the transition point um, that we've had in global monetary system, we've only really had a few, you know, uh, gold standards in a war period, um, like through the Bretton Woods system, then the collapse of Bretton Woods into <clears throat> fiat and fractional, which is what I would characterize the last 50 years has been, I think 2020, like if we're talking in 10 years' time, I think everyone will go, oh, right, so we are actually in a different system now, and it's characterized by digital currencies, and they've opened up new forms of executing monetary policy, uh, new forms of transaction, and therefore, it does warrant um, a different moniker than than where we've been.
0: We're talking with Grant Wilson, head of Asia Pacific for X Anti Data. I mean, great. I think one of the really interesting questions is, you say, like, well, okay, so we we sort of can transact digitally quite well today. We have Venmo, we have PayPal. We, you know, I haven't left my house in in months. Like, do I have any cash? I do everything electronically. Like, what is important about these? electronic digital currencies and how it, um, you know, what is really changing. And I think this, it, this gets into a lot of really interesting points of what does the CB, central bank digital currency, CBDC mean for the banks, like for the banks in China or it, eventually if we do it in the US, how is that different? And you sort of talked about Alipay and Alibaba and how it matters for them and there's the, the, the politics there. Maybe let's walk through how they can sort of sidestep the traditional banking channel and what that means.
2: Yeah, this is where it gets into, um, you know, a mixture of, um, you know, being informed and also speculating somewhat. And, again, we've got, you know, we've got guys on the team that speak Chinese and that um, translate websites and and things like that. So we're pretty much there, but there's still stuff that we don't know, right? And it's evolving all the time. Um, In terms of, like, the big conceptual um, sort of starting point, Jeremy, it may just be useful to reflect upon um, digital currencies and and including crypto and the key innovation really, and this is you know this is what Satoshi did, was um, enable us to have peer to peer transactions, right? So you don't need a commercial bank or a PayPal or a financial intermediary in the middle of the digital transactions that you referred to, right? Um, so that's the key innovation. I mean, there's other ways to phrase it. You know, it's opened up um, a transition from double entry bookkeeping with an auditor. Um, to triple entry bookkeeping, arguably, where you've still got the debit and the credit, but you've got a publicly encrypted key floating around so you don't need audit. So there's, there's different ways to get excited about this. Um, but I think the idea that, you know, we can go peer to peer is probably the key point to make right at the, at the start, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the fears from the regulators, perhaps, is that if they used to transmit policy just through like the big banking channel, if if they right. sort of really develop, it sort of puts the big banks, quote unquote, out of business in some way.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, like it's it's really cool to start to explore some of these outer perimeters because it, it starts to blow your mind, but it also starts to inform the way that these projects will probably be rolled out because there is vulnerabilities here. And you touched on a great one there. Like if you're you're a corporate or a citizen um, and you can put your deposit uh, with the central bank, um, removing any credit risk and still getting paid uh, the same interest rate, even if it's zero (laughs) in many cases, then what are you doing uh, with your money at the commercial bank? Now, if everyone takes their money out of the commercial bank, it loses its key source of funding and can't sustain its loan book other than by repaying it back to the central bank right? So um, that would not be a good outcome, uh, which is why these projects, most of the time, when we talk about um, CBDC, you know, we talk about it being constrained in some way, like there might be limits, uh, issuer limits, for example, how much people can hold, uh, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't necessarily interfere with uh, traditional commercial banking. And that's sort of a key Um, pillar, if you look at the BIS statements on foundational principles for CBDC, they straight away say that we don't want it interfering with the way that monetary and fiscal policy is currently demarcated and we don't want it undermining the commercial banking system. They want all these things. But, you know, at the same time, the technology is pretty much purpose built to hit these ends, right? Because that's sort of where the exciting piece is. You know, China's off doing these digital airdrops at the moment, um, incentivizing people to have wallets and, and they're giving, they're literally giving the money away. It's not much. It's a red packet. It's like $30. But in China, that's material and, and people, lots of people are signing up and hoping to win these lotteries. And then they can spend the money on a peer to peer basis. And, you know, technically that's a helicopter drop. Technically, you know, yeah, that's, 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 the central bank, that, that's the central bank just coming out of nowhere, crediting a citizen uh, with 30 bucks, putting in a wallet, um, having done KYC on the way in, right, and then being able to monitor the transactions uh, that that citizen's doing, including with the vendor at a big data centre and with two addresses, right? And then, you know, you think about that and what it might mean for China's ability to stimulate when they have a a demand shock or something like that, but also just be able to surveil and monitor uh, their citizenry in terms of uh, transactions and, and spend, I mean, it's quite mind-blowing if you think about it, it for a big, big country to be doing this um, and to, steal, to have stolen a couple of years march on the technological development and to be rolling it out as aggressively as they are. Listen, I don't know where we're going to be in 10 years, but it's not going to look like this. It's going to look different, Right. I mean, you you had a line like the
0: West is talking, but the East is doing. I mean, I I think uh-huh. about like India also that like they sort of banned some of the really large bills to try to end some of the corruption, and you had to they sort of gave everybody a digital number where they could open their bank accounts, like with with you know all with lot sort of leapfrogging technology in many ways, and sort mm-hmm. of you wonder if if you know you, there was all sort of questions: Is the Fed effective at buying bonds and doing the QE programs? But hey, if they had these they could they could directly not just support Wall Street with their QE, they could actually directly give money to the people, like you're saying China's doing the drops. Um, maybe that's where the direction's going.
2: Well, yeah, and I sort of, again, being a little bit controversial in the article with the tone, but, yeah, just calling Western-style QE out in terms of it not having worked, right? And also central banks, you know, And obviously we we know a lot of central bankers and we've talked to them, so I've got to be a little bit careful here. Um, But there's, you know, it does fall into that category, that sort of apocryphal statement offered attributed to Einstein of, you know, doing the same thing and thing again and expecting a different result. Right. And so that's sort of where we are at the moment. We're sort of caught in this um, uh, QE model and it's not working in terms of inflation other than through asset prices, and that's having a dramatic impact in terms of uh, social inequality. <clears throat> so if they had an alternative, and China doesn't just have an alternative, they've, they've been practicing an alternative since arguably 2015. Like, they, they focus not on QE. Even through the pandemic, they didn't do QE. They did reserve requirements and other forms of um, quantitative lending targets. Um, and you know they were very focused on making sure that m two broad money stayed stable right um, that was their goal, and that's what they achieved so the china's off doing a you know entirely different form of monetary stimulus and and their monetary policy in terms of transmissibility is evolving. If the West had something like this, I think it'd be interesting we don't know there's problems with you know helicopter drops, obviously because you do get this merger of um, of fiscal and uh, and and monetary and, and questions about why unelected officials have the capability to drop money into people's wallets and how you do that. Is it, is, it, is it 30 bucks for everyone? Is it 100 bucks for everyone? You know, how do we charge central bankers with such incredible authority? And also, if we do get inflation, how do you drain that liquidity from the system, right? They, these, are, these are complex issues. And if they're at scale, um, it, you know, you really got to think your way through it. But there's a lot of academic literature out there um, and, you know, I think it'll just become more activated. Um, and certainly if if China's sort of successful in this project, and even if they're not, like I do think the West has to start moving, and, and they are. Like the BIS authored, I mentioned there's a paper online, uh, Found- Foundational Principles of CBDC, and that was the BIS in concert with seven central banks, including the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan, right? And the two leaders... Um, in the West, probably Sweden, I would say, maybe Canada. Um, you know, Australia is a backwater for this sort of stuff, unfortunately, and um, I've said that publicly. And you know, there's other projects around, like Singapore and so on, and so forth. A lot of these projects focus at the wholesale level, um, not the not the retail level. But I think there's a there's a catch up here, and I think the Europeans are pretty open minded about it. But again, you've still got to try and figure out the um, how to pr- preserve some level of privacy in a western context now china doesn't need to do that doesn't want to do that but it's a different set of principles obviously in the west so yeah listen it's a huge topic and we're jumping yeah. around a little bit on it but at least <clears throat> hopefully conveying to, to listeners just um the scope of this thing you know it, it's really hard to put an outer perimeter on where this might go <clears throat> if
0: you go back to like why they're and why it's sort of interesting what what sort of the, the conversation you, you had you just made a point on and i had taken note of it that you know China didn't do you know the M two money growth that we had in the US it's one of the reasons we've been talking about hey um we're gonna have a return to some inflation tendencies, huge M two growth, you know, it's combined with the fiscal and the monetary together. You called them the hard money capital of the world with no <laughs> QE and, you know, constant stuff and and <laughs> a wall of money to come after that hard money capital of the world. Do you really think is, I mean, there's sort of capital restrictions coming from the US. Is there really that much interest in CNY, Chinese currency here?
2: Yeah, yeah, there is. And this goes back to probably the more traditional side of Exante's business, I think. Like, we do track uh, bond inflows and equity inflows and um, flows between Hong Kong and uh, China, uh, you know, through Stock Connect and stuff like that. And Pretty much all of last year I mean there was a, there was a the hiccup obviously when we had that uh, really acute period of um, market disruption week of March fifteen right but arguably even through that, um, there was money flowing from Hong Kong through to China, so um, it has just been a, a continuous one way um, imbalance I would say of of there being just much more demand for Chinese assets than <clears throat> than money flowing in the opposite direction. And it's partly driven by things like um, index uh, rebalancing, but it's partly, I think, Jeremy, best understood in the context of just the dramatic underweight that that most managers have uh, towards China, including central banks. Like if you think about global central banks, um, they've got reserves, which they're meant to allocate out, and they do allocate out. And, you know, you can see the COFA report, and that'll tell you that 60% of those reserves is in US dollars, and only 2% is in rmv based product, right? Now, China's got a lot of those reserves, but even if you strip China out of the, the metric, you're going to get to 3%, which just tells you that reserve managers are structurally underweight. But you could go around the real money um, community globally and, you know, you can make similar arguments and you can just ultimately get to this point where um, not only do they have this trade surplus, um, but there's just this ongoing demand um, for, for chinese assets and yeah it's still a function of yield and maybe the average person going into these products is is not um, motivated by esoteric arguments on chinese monetary policy but they might well be motivated by a three percent nominal yield um you know it's something which you can't really get in other places and the infrastructure is you know much better now as well through bond connect you know, it used to be more difficult to get money in, or there were quotas, or liquidity issues, or visibility on pricing issues, and so on and so forth. But the markets, you know, getting deeper and stronger all the time, and much more transactable. And so it's it's sort of ironic <clears throat> that you know we've been through this really acute period of, and we still are in it. We touched on this at the start of geopolitical tension, but investors, um, you know, are just looking straight through that and are motivated by. You know, risk and reward. And on that basis, um, yeah, there's a lot of money, a wall of money going into China and awaiting to go into China.
0: I mean, I, from a transaction perspective, I mean, I, I saw a story saying going back five years ago, if you just take Russia and China, like 90% of their transactions would have been done in dollars, US dollars, back in 2015 and uh, now it's below 50% and it's sort of transacting more in CNY and sort of that sort of goes to the, hey, maybe the reserves are in dollars, but the flow is going elsewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think um, once uh, Russia was um, put on around the, you know, the OFAC list and stuff like that, um, and that was associated with you know, Crimea and Ukraine and, and Putin pushing that way, um, there was a real reaction in terms of reserve management. Uh, in Moscow and they did make a big effort to to move uh, dollars and treasury exposure into other currencies but to really you know challenge the hedging of the dollar is 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 very difficult like it it is about ultimately reorientating invoicing and and trade flows and um you know for things like the belt and the road you know to have um remittances in RMB and so forth and so I think the, the other aspect of the digital r and project, they, they hope, is that they are, are, are able ultimately to push this out through projects like that and through the Chinese diaspora and have uh, this digital R&B circulating, you know, to the 30 million Chinese people that are high net worth that live outside the mainland. Um, and, you know, through these different means, they try to chip away at um, the dollar's central role in the global economy. The exorbitant privilege, you know, famously said, because I think they recognize that as a key strategic advantage that the U.S. has.
0: You know, we, we, we talked a little bit about China leading in sort of the experiments. It's hard to know who goes. But if, if you had to handicap when you think we'll see the developed world go towards these central bank digital currencies and who it is to go first, do you have a do you have your, your horse who's going to be the first in the race there? In response to China? Or do you mean... Yeah, generally in the sort of West, the traditional yeah. markets.
2: I mean, Sweden's fascinating, right? Uh, the, the Swedish have um, a real shot at, at, at adoption because Swedish citizens generally have averred cash for many years. Um, if you you know walk around Stockholm, you'll see places that say, says literally, we don't accept cash, right? And so there's actually a project uh, formally in place in the next couple of years um, in Sweden to you know change legal tender the status of legal tender and to literally take physical cash out of circulation to replace it with um an e-crona so that that one's very interesting but again um it's it's sort of different in the sense that i think it's um still going to be intermediated through the commercial banks and all the rest of that so but nonetheless i'd say that's probably the 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 poster child of of the west and if you're looking to you know compare to what china's doing it's probably the best place to start
0: very interesting. Now you you sort of alluded that Bitcoin was its own animal in in okay. that post, but also tied into it. Do You guys have a view on what's what's happening in Bitcoin? Sort of the the scarcity story is, has been yeah. been driving the flow. How how do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I had to credentialize myself because you know everyone's now they're doing what I refer to as crypto signaling, which is sort of carbon dating their involvement and um, making sure that people know that they were there back and when. And, so I, I, I linked to something I wrote in 2013, which is when I sort of first started looking uh, at it in depth. And um, so I'm guilty of that too. But it is, it is um, something that has fascinated me for a long time. Uh, you know, I think the white paper that Satoshi wrote is a historical document. You know, it's, in, it's incredible. And um, where it's got to is, is fascinating and infuriating um, as well. And so, I mean, I think ultimately right now, Um, I'd be very, very wary, Um, you know. And uh, this is, you know, someone that holds but also trades, right? And so I think around the turn of the calendar year is a precarious point um, for the asset class. We saw that 2017-18. Sometimes it's things like tax effects and um, other ructions. and we've already seen, you know, pretty explosive move up and down. And I think for people that are new to it, maybe trying to understand, you know, some of the, the ways that the, the true evangelists think about it and try to quantify it. So, there's popular models out there, like the float-to-stock model is worth a look. Um, network transaction-to-value to ratio is worth a look. So, it's not just sort of arbitrary. Um, but even with these models, Jeremy, like, listen, if you want a number, I can tweak a parameter in that model right. <laughs> and I can get you that number. And that could be 10,000, that could be a million, yeah. right? So, there's a fair bit of um pseudoscience going on in terms of trying to explain it particularly from the late comers i actually think like one of the tells for me is the quality of the the crossover flows and so when i and i won't name people here when i see some people making headlines and saying things and reorientating, reorientating their businesses um on the fly i get extremely um concerned that you're going to have right, right. You know, a pretty big correction and so <clears throat> listen there's there's obviously a huge bull case uh, PayPal could open it up to transactions this year. Um, We are seeing serious, uh, you know, moves underneath uh, the surface as well in terms of crossover interest. Um, But yeah, listen, look where it came from. Um, And um, school up, you know, school up I think is probably the best message from us at the moment rather than just giving uh, arbitrary sort of price targets. I mean, one of
0: the interesting stories I, you know, I, that crossed my radar and I, you know ties into the story that we were just talking about on on China is how disproportionate some of the mining activities are coming from China that you know that where a lot of the miners are located are in China and and so you wonder you know there was news this week on like the UK you know some uk regulators saying you could lose all your money in bitcoin like what would the kind of things be that would make it really a, a sort of a, a negative? well there's always the government basically outlawing the transactions in some form you know and they say like well what would do that well us and china tensions you get all this bitcoins accumulating in china somewhere and the tensions go so, so the us government takes more action i mean do, is that any is there anything to that story of all the bitcoin mining happening in china
2: I mean, there's great irony. Absolutely. You know, it's around 70% for Bitcoin at the moment. And a lot of it's done in Xinjiang, which is a province where the Uyghur uh, containment and re-education camps are, this form of over um, yeah. Islamic suppression. So it's quite ironic that you've got these libertarian sort of ideal and everyone making these quick fortunes in the West and sort of proclaiming um, these noble uh, ideals. And yet... I think 25% at the moment is <laughs> is next door to these camps, right? So that's, um, that's a sad reality. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of <clears throat> uh, debates if you're talking about sustainability of, um, you know, carbon emissions. Again, the, the evangelists will tell you that they're using a lot of stranded energy and um, renewable energy now and all the rest of it. But, yeah, it's not an ideal way to think about building a new financial infrastructure, um, to have such a carbon-intensive um, consensus process at the heart of it, and this is where the, the contrast to central bank digital currencies is actually quite profound. Because central bank digital currencies, by their nature, the consensus protocol is much more centralized. Right? Technically, China's project doesn't actually involve a blockchain at all. Um, so they can they can uh, put through um, hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. It can be. It's much more scalable than a decentralized project. Now these decentralized projects, they're trying to get to scale, right? There's different initiatives, the Lightning Network and sharding in the case of Ethereum. But just at its its nature, um, central bank digital currencies are gonna be more sustainable from an ecological point of view, also faster, much faster. And so, yeah, in terms of um, the the famous uh, China shutting down Bitcoin argument, Yeah, this is referred to as a double spend attack. So if you control more than 50% of the hashing power, um, you can potentially um, break the input-output transaction uh, model, which is right at the heart of Bitcoin, and um, spend the Bitcoin twice and undermine the credibility or fork uh, the coin, right? So this... This is technically possible, but still extremely difficult to achieve because there is decentralisation within the Chinese mining pools and a question of why Beijing would want to, you know, do this if they could. But it's interesting. You know, there's always... You'll find some conspiracy theories online if you, if you look hard enough. Um, I think that the people that are really deep in the weeds will tell you that if, if they tried to do that, um, you'd see it coming um, and there could be some reorientation of the hashing power to protect it. But, yeah, listen... You don't have to be watching Mr. Robot or whatever to get your head around this sort of stuff. You can it, it's it is true that um and Ripple's CEO made this point when um, he took that hit from the SEC that uh the predominance of of mining power is based in China.
0: Any you know, we've talked about a lot of good topics here. Um any other things where things that you got your focused on at Exante that you want to make sure we, we cover in this conversation?
2: Yeah, it's a pretty broad conversation, but why don't I just finish on one broader note. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I wrote a second blog on the weekend uh, on, um, and this is going to sound, you know, potentially left field for a lot of people, but not people that are in the space or um, that are in real money or corporate land, um, but on sustainability reporting. So the idea that companies, um, you know, over the next five years or so are actually going to be forced not to just report uh, profit and loss, but they're going to be, f- forced to report sustainability metrics um, and quantify the impact, forward-looking impact of sustainability on um, profit and loss and do scenario analysis and all the rest of this. Um, This this space is is really taking off um, and it will um, do much um, more service to the planet than (laughs) a lot of other things. And I think if people are not aware of this area, um, even in macro land, um, they should take a look because it is actually expressible um, now. There's enough tools and quantitative graft and rigour uh, and heft being put into the space that there are ways to, to trade uh, this theme. And uh, if you're in corporate space, it's going to become mandatory. Uh, so New Zealand, the UK uh, and Hong Kong have already announced mandatory climate-related financial disclosure for 2023, 4, 5 type area. And I think the rest of the world will follow because the IFRS is is now being rolled out as the global cheerleader of this initiative, which is the point I made in the blog. So that's just another thought bubble, Um, probably a different blog (laughs) or podcast, Jeremy, Um, maybe later in the year if you want to untap that area because I think it's fascinating and I think it will ultimately redefine how we think about capitalism and financial markets because, you, you know, you're getting people like, BlackRock and you know Bridgewater involved on the buy side perspective.
0: No, that's that's a that's a really interesting way to end. You know, I certainly a lot of my European colleagues would say the same thing. It's sort of standard discussion yeah. in Europe. It's increasingly coming to the to the US and, and other markets. So have you got um, an ETF,
2: uh, Jeremy? A Wisdom tree ESG ETF, yeah?
0: We do some work in the area. Um there's uh, for sure. Yep. We're focused <laughs> on that as well. So, yeah. so absolutely. Well, this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. We talked yeah. with Grant Wilson um, from Exante, head of Asia Pacific. Thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Markets, Grant.
2: Okay. Thanks, Jeremy.
0: Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. If you listen to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com.